This week, I've written you a very special episode with some spooks and scares. This episode also features a wholly original score written by Andrew Clotworthy and Andy Neese, so I hope you forgive my lateness in getting it to you. The stories in this episode may be genuinely scary to some listeners, so please only listen if you aren't sensitive to that sort of thing. Listeners beware, you're in for a scare. Greetings from Lake Melancholera, God's grandest land with amber waves of rainy days, giving way to purple mountains of majesty and fruited plains of plenty. Lake Melancholera, where the days are dark, the nights are long, the men are real men, and so are the women. The freedom of following is shared by all under our bountiful city council, who rule us with a velvet fist and fancy circuses. Our namesake lake lends a laconic air to our awe-inspiring awful streets, boulevards, avenues, and abattoirs. Its murky depths conceal a real feeling of history's mysteries beneath a shallow, shining layer of skidoos and recreational watercraft. Out here on the edge of eternity, we go about our small-town lives, loving and laughing with one another in open defiance of our long, long, lonely nights. Greetings from Lake Melancholera. I say hello to you, and you, and you as well, and I imagine each of you saying hello back to me. I am Gregward Hoxley, your host and house guest, as I lead the directions of this conversation. For that's what it is, you see, a conversation between you and I and our friends and neighbors. This is your radio bulletin board, where I read your letters and share your concerns on the goings-on around our little corner of heaven. We all enjoyed a quietly creepy Halloween, so here are several stories of the season, written by our neighbors nestled in the nethers of our village. To start us off, I've selected a selection sent in by Daryl Lee, the gentleman farmer out at the edge of town. Please excuse the rudeness of the language used by Mr. Lee. It isn't often that he talks to the people outside of his property. Hey everybody, long time listener, first time writer. Whew. It's weird to feel nervous and stage frighted over writing a damn letter. Mr. Hoxley, if you want to brush this up a bit to make me sound smart like the other people writing in, I'd appreciate it. As an aside, we do not edit any letters that make it past the Lake Melancholera censorship cabal. I know a lot of people write in like, I never thought I'd write into the show, but not me. I've been trying to think of a good thing to say on the show for ages. But now the weird shit is going down around the farm, I'm having trouble getting the words right. Okay, first things first. My cousin from out of town sent me some seeds in the mail, right? I didn't even know I had a cousin or that there really was an out of town, let alone that they would know I was a farmer. Well, I'm a kind of farmer. I grow vegetables to sell at the farmer's market in town and to eat myself, but I don't know anything about fertility rituals and I don't have a spot on the Black River Convocation Committee. I guess farming is kind of a hobby for me. 
Mostly, I get by on the money my old man left me when he passed on. But I know how to plant seeds, and that's exactly what I got in the mail. Shit, writing letters is hard as fuck. Okay, so I got these seeds and a letter from my cousin I never heard of that basically said, here's some seeds to plant, also I'm your cousin from out of town. I lost the letter, but that's pretty much what it said. There was some technical shit about blood and water, but like I said, I'm not a real deal professional, sacrifice the innocent type farmer. Anyway, I've got a planter behind the house where my mama used to plant flowers before she passed on, and I thought that would make a good place to keep whatever the seeds were from getting out of control and fucking up my crops. Also, it would be easy to check on it and keep an eye on it. I dug a little hole, dropped the envelope of seeds in, covered it up, and watered it. For the next couple of weeks, I kept a little watering can by the back door and would give them a drink on my way out to the real plot. They sprouted little yellow leaves I didn't recognize, and I thought I had fucked up planting them in the shade by the house. But what are you going to do? They didn't die at least, so I kept watering them. Then I had other things to worry about. I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but at the beginning of October there was some kind of weird problem with the water. I was out looking over the pumpkins, big money crop that time of year, when I noticed the irrigation system cut off in a strange way. Like one second, it was pumping like normal. Then there was no water for a couple of seconds. Then a big stream of water gushed out of there like the pressure had increased or something. It screwed my system up royally, let me tell you. Water don't grow on trees. It costs money to pump it out over the plants. And too much will fuck them up just as bad as too little. I had to turn the whole system off and go tinker around with it all day to get it working right again. It pissed me off to be quite honest with you. I was thinking about writing a letter in then, but instead I went down to the corner stop and bought some beers and shot the shit with Omar down there for an hour or two. He came by the house when his shift was over and we played video games for a while and I figured it wasn't that big of a deal after all. Yeah, so after the water thing, I started noticing the seeds were doing great. Big green leaves were growing, and vines were creeping out of the planter onto the wall of the house. I thought about trimming them back, but I was like, nah, what the hell, let them have their fun. I don't know if any of you guys have been out by my place, but it's painted that shitty avocado green stoves and whatnot used to be. My folks had terrible taste. Yeah, there's carpet on the ceiling in the basement too. Truly fucked up shit. So like, who cares if the plant wants to climb up the wall? I thought it was an improvement. I just kept watering it every day and being amazed at how good it was going. Then, like a week later, it had taken over the whole planter. When it tried to grow up over a window, I kind of pushed it over onto the wall, and that seemed to suit us both fine. So, I was headed out to pick some pumpkins for the farmer's market when I heard a little voice say, Sir? Sir? In a movie, that voice would be real high and squeaky. Like if a man got shrunk down small, for some reason now he has to talk like Elvin and the Chipmunks, right? I never got that. Like dogs is smaller than us, but a lot of dogs still have big deep voices. If I woke up tomorrow two inches tall, I'd still be able to sing the bass part of Blue Moon. Well, most of it anyway. Which is a long way of saying that the voice was quiet, but not squeaky. A normal voice. I looked around for a person but couldn't spot anybody. Then I saw something small by the plant moving around and I got startled and jumped. Like a mouse moves too fast for something so small 
It spooks you even though you know a mouse can't really hurt you. That kind of thing. If any of you wants to give me a hard time about it, you can catch me at the farmer's market. Christ, I shouldn't have included that part. Never mind, it didn't scare me. I was fine. But after I got over the very little bit of a spook, barely even noticeable really, I moved in closer to take a better look. There, in my planter, was a little, four inch tall, bikini babe. Like, she was a hot babe, wearing leaves for clothes. Now, I'm just a hobbyist farmer for sure, but even I know a plant spirit when I see one. Like, I don't know whether it's a nymph or a dryad or what the fuck technically, but if a plant has a spirit and it's like down there in the dirt talking to you, it's going to be a bikini babe dressed in leaves. So she's saying like, blah blah blah, I need some fertilizer, and like, could you get rid of the walls of this planter so I can grow more in all this? And I say, sure, I think we could manage it. And what's it like to be a plant? And we just get to chatting and I'm having such a nice time, I don't hardly remember she's the size of a dollar bill. Luckily though, I did remember I needed to get those pumpkins to the market. I told her I'd be back soon, picked a nice pallet of pumpkins, and got myself out there to sell them. It was tough to stay at market until the pumpkins were gone. I guess I never really thought up till then about how lonely it was to live out on the edge of town by yourself. The parents were real happy with the deals I was giving them on the pumpkins, trying to get rid of them as quick as I could. The kids didn't seem to care all that much at the prospect of jack-o'-lanterns, which is a little strange. Come to think of it, I haven't seen any kids around lately. Huh. Anyway, I raced home and got a shovel out of the barn and pulled the wall of the planter down. The wood was old and it was a fairly simple job. Then it was time to spread the fertilizer around and I couldn't stop apologizing to my new friend about how all I had was cow and horse manure I bought from the farm next door. Piria, sorry, I forgot to say, but that's what her name was, she told me. Piria didn't care at all. She loved the stuff and went around pushing it down to the roots where she needed it. I guess it's a lot like a thing I read online about dog food. Like, dogs, they're scavengers in the wild. There's nothing they like more than old rotten meat. The smellier the better. That's why they're always going around, sniffing at butts and whatnot. They aren't nasty perverts, that's just the stuff they like to smell. But people, we don't want to feed the dogs we love nasty old rotting bones, right? It feels disrespectful. We want to give them a nice treat, something we could imagine eating our own selves. But here's the thing. A dog will take a bite of your meal without question, but what it would really love is that nasty old bone. So dog food manufacturers have to walk this line of making the food the right amount of gross so the dogs will like it, but nice that humans don't mind feeding it to their friend. It's honestly quite a fucked up situation. Piria was able to show me just where to put the fertilizer and how much water, and by the next week she had taken over all of the backyard and was creeping up onto the roof. She stayed off the sides of the house and never made her way to the front. I thought it would be best if she stayed off the front and sides to keep people driving by from seeing. The agriculture board can be kind of a kick in the dick sometimes. By this time, she was about a foot and a half tall herself, and I was starting to think about letting her take over some of my crop space. I've always dreamed of having a nice, tall, Amazonian-type girlfriend of my own, and while things hadn't become romantic between us, she seemed to like me a whole lot. I ran out of fertilizer and I was thinking I'd go get some nice stuff from the farmer's outlet instead of the compost and manure I'd been using. Well, I guess my neighbor to the east had decided to ride his tractor out to the edge of his property 
and he saw how overgrown with leaves and vines my yard had become. He came over to investigate, and being a farmer himself, he recognized Peria at once, and was having a talk with her when I got home from the farmer's outlet. I walked up the driveway lugging a big bag of chemical fertilizer, and when I round the house, there's Ed Hadley bent over the planter, talking to Peria. Peria was giving him the, Please, sir, would you mind if my roots spread your property? And Ed was grinning ear to ear, and it pissed me off. Here I was, working my fingers to the bone, helping her grow, and now old Ed Hadley gets to come in and take her away from me? After I paid him for the privilege of hauling off literal shit out of his way? I was seeing red, and I guess I wanted Ed to see some too. I dropped the bag of fertilizer and hauled off and walloped in the nose when he stood up and looked my way, after hearing the bag drop. He fell to the ground and his nose was like a damn geyser of blood, spraying it all over Peria and the leaves. Here's another situation where she didn't react the way I expected, but I guess I would have recognized it had I been more of a professional farmer. She got all excited by the blood and ran up on Ed's chest. She stood in the geyser of it, and the vines around him started to move as though they were muscly green snakes. They wrapped themselves around old Ed as he hollered and yelled. The vines went down his open throat, and I looked away from his face. Peria was just laughing and dancing around on top of him, and I couldn't help but catch a little of her mood. It's nice to see her friends so happy, you know? So Ed quieted down, and now I could hear a new sound. The vines were growing so quick you could hear them sort of crackling and slithering forward onto the tomato plants plot closest to my house. I left Peria B and got on Ed's tractor and drove it back to his garage. We decided it would be fine if Peria grew over into Ed's land now, so long as she started back behind the barn. Less easy to see it from the road that way. She hated that goddamn chemical fertilizer. Well, anyway. After being so scared to get started, I let myself go on longer than I expected on this letter. I just wanted everyone to know that while I did give Ed Hadley a broken nose, I didn't murder the guy. That was Peria. She's almost five feet tall now and has been hinting at how happy and grateful she would be if I could keep the water flowing and maybe find her some more blood. So if anyone wants to make a big deal about old Ed, feel free to come on by and we can hash it out. Your constant listener, Daryl Lee. Huddled 
around a flaming oil drum For warmth and split a single hunt-baked bean for us to share We raised our tin cans filled with puddle wine And cried in jubilation over our delicious meal With God we made a deal Everybody wants to live on the moon They say that they're mining on the moon I put on my moonman uniform and grab my pickaxe I'm headed to the first sign Mrs. Butler saw that anything strange was going on at the school was the chocolate milk. She forgot to bring lunch with her, and she didn't want to bother leaving the school. So when it was time to take her class to the cafeteria, she got in line right behind them and grabbed a tray. The lunch lady, her friend Rhonda, gave her a wink and a scoop of chicken soup with all the kids. She made her way down the line, choosing an apple and a little cup of dangerous-looking pale green beans. And when she got to the end... She looked into the cooler and saw it was stocked full of chocolate milks. Wow, you must have just stocked the cooler, Rhonda. She called over the heads of the children in line. Nope, seems like the kids just don't have a taste for it anymore. They're all bringing water bottles lately. Mrs. Butler smiled and nodded. She'd also noticed the kids bringing in reusable water bottles from home and had attributed them to a lesson a few weeks before about global warming. It made her happy to know her words could reach the kids this way, but something about a cooler full of chocolate milk made her feel uneasy. When exactly had the water bottle started? She couldn't remember. After lunch, it was time to talk about the class Halloween party. I'll need some volunteers to help me decorate the classroom, and we'll have pizza and Bob for apples and... Yes, Trevor? Did you want to volunteer? Mrs. Butler said. 
Trevor put his hand down and replied, No, ma'am, I was just thinking. I mean, a bunch of us were thinking. Instead of all the work of decorating the room, why don't we have the party down by the lake this year? Oh, Trevor, it's going to be too cold for swimming. I know, Mrs. Butler. I mean, we could just all go down to the lake and eat our pizza and play games. That would be fun. All the children in the room were nodding their heads in agreement. Several spoke up and said Trevor was right. The lake would be the perfect place for a Halloween party. Well, all right, if that's what everyone thinks, Mrs. Butler said. She moved on to their spelling assignments. The students were very thirsty that day. She had to keep telling them to put their water bottles back in their backpacks. Friday night of that week, she went out as she usually did with several of the other teachers and her friend Rhonda from the cafeteria. They had dinner and drinks together and generally let off steam after a week of being around children all day. Well, Halloween's not going to be as big of a hassle this year, Mrs. Priest said over her half-empty glass of wine. The kids all want to have their party outside, down by the lake. Around the table, the teachers set their forks and glasses down and looked at Mrs. Priest curiously. You know, my kids said the same thing, Mrs. Alone said. Everyone agreed. Every class had decided to leave the classroom and go down by the lake that year. Why did all of them decide on that, Rhonda asked. Nobody knew. They talked it over and couldn't come up with any reason not to. A nice section of the lake was within the school grounds and was equipped with picnic tables. Every class spent at least a few days each year lakeside when the students got too restless for staying indoors. It just seemed unusual and almost conspiratorial. Where's our waiter? Mrs. Butler asked. I haven't seen him in ages and I need another drink. Anyone want anything? Cheryl? The new student teacher, Cheryl Tenner, shook her head no with a small smile and raised her water bottle. I'm good. Monday, Mrs. Butler asked Trevor to stay behind for a moment when the students went to recess. Why is everyone so thirsty lately, Trevor? She asked, jokingly. You kids should save some water for the fishes. I don't know, Mrs. Butler. Water has just been really good lately. You should try it. Of course I've been drinking water, silly. It tastes normal to me, she replied. Yes, it tastes the same, but it's better. All of us kids love to drink it now. Anyway, can I go to recess? Mrs. Butler went to the teacher's lounge and filled her coffee mug with water from the tap. She looked at it distrustfully, but finally decided to take a big drink. She drained the mug and stood at the sink thoughtfully. Was it different? It didn't seem that way to her. She washed her mug and put it back in the cupboard. By the week of Halloween, it was no longer feasible to tell the children to take their water bottles off their desks. Mrs. Butler had sent a few students to the office for repeatedly pulling them out of their backpacks after she had told them to put them away, until the principal had pulled her aside and told her to let them be. The office was jammed with water bottle reflated infractions. Four days before Halloween, Mrs. Butler brought a jug of water and set it on an empty desk in the corner to keep the children in the classroom. Strangely, all this water consumption didn't seem to affect requests for bathroom breaks. She had called her doctor and raised her concerns about all the water with him, but Dr. Fisher already knew all about the issue. Several worried parents had brought their children into him, but after thorough examinations, he had to declare each of them completely healthy. Three days before Halloween, 
five different children brought in new water bottles specifically for Mrs. Butler and set them on her desk like apples for teacher. At lunch, two of them stayed behind and told her they were worried she wasn't drinking enough water. She took a long swig from one of the bottles and smiled at them, and they were very relieved. Two days before Halloween, Cheryl, the student teacher, ducked her head into the classroom while the children were in music class. Mrs. Butler looked up from the papers she was grading to see her smiling broadly. Oh good, she said, gesturing to the water bottles. You're drinking. E yes, Mrs. Butler replied. She drank from one of the bottles. Cheryl smiled again and gave her a very goofy looking thumbs up. Great, see you at the Halloween party. Mrs. Butler went to set the water bottle down and hesitated. There was something about it, wasn't there? One day before Halloween, Mrs. Butler had to refill the water jug nearly every hour. The children did worksheets and watched spooky videos all day. Anytime Mrs. Butler tried to talk, she found herself absent-mindedly pausing to drink. So often, she was never able to finish a thought. The morning of Halloween, Mrs. Butler and the other teachers did their best to decorate the school grounds at Lakeside with cobwebs and orange and black streamers, but aside from picnic tables, it was just an open area with nowhere really to put anything. The weather was unseasonably warm and beautiful, which was lovely for a day outside, but not really fitting the holiday. Mrs. Butler looked over their handiwork before the students started to arrive and sighed. At first, she thought the kids were equally unimpressed by the location they had chosen for their party. They gathered in small groups and talked quietly. She noticed each of them would look at the lake distractedly during their conversations. When she went from group to group, she expected them to stop talking or obviously change the subject when she approached, but they seemingly really were, just all making small talk about the weather or their previous weekends. She felt a little silly in her black dress and witch's hat, and could see the other teachers who had dressed up also looked uncomfortable. None of the children had worn costumes this year. Mrs. Priest tried to gather some children up to play, pin the nose on the jack-o'-lantern, and was able to rouse a few volunteers, but mostly they stayed to themselves. Mrs. Butler was sitting at a picnic table, eating a caramel apple, the only one taken from the platter so far, when she happened to look at the group of children Trevor was speaking to. As she watched, he looked over his shoulder at the lake, as the kids had been doing, but this time he couldn't seem to pull his attention away from it. He walked a few steps away from the group, staring at the lake. Mrs. Butler tossed the rest of her apple into the trash and went to talk to him, trying to appear unworried and nonchalant. She looked out at the lake where his eyes were pointed, but didn't see anything out of the ordinary. What do you see out there, Trevor? She asked him with a smile. Nothing yet. Trevor replied without looking away. Mrs. Butler looked back out and stared, trying to figure out what was holding his attention. As she looked, her mind blinked, and she forgot why she was staring at the lake in the first place. Eventually, when Mrs. Priest grasped her arm and asked her what they had all been looking at in a terrified voice, she felt a wave of disorientation as the sun had moved from where it was the last time she was thinking. She looked around her. Now all the children were standing in a line staring into the lake silently. She tried to rouse Trevor, but this time he wouldn't talk to her. Some of the teachers were also looking, including Cheryl, but most of them were gathered by the picnic tables, talking in a quiet but panicked round. 
When she approached, they all asked her what she had seen, but there was nothing to tell them. The only thing she could think of was Mrs. Priest's hand on her arm, snapping her back into reality. They should all go to the children, give them a little shake to wake them, and finish the party back inside the school auditorium. Back at the empty spot she had just left, Mrs. Butler touched Trevor's arm lightly. Instantly, he snapped awake with a jolt and grabbed her wrist. He pointed at the lake where he had been staring. Look! He screamed ecstatically. It's here! It's here, you guys! He jumped for joy and laughed excitedly like a kid at Christmas, never releasing her wrist. All down the line, the children were reacting in the same way. It's here! It's begun! Let's go! They started to walk towards the lake. Mrs. Butler tried to get Trevor's hand off her wrist, but as she did, several of the students from her class gathered around her, tugging her black witch's dress and pushing her from behind. She looked around wildly. Each of the teachers had been surrounded in the same way, except for Cheryl, who was holding the students' hands and giggling along with them. Don't be afraid, Mrs. Butler. We're going to the city, one of the students behind her said in a jolly voice. She looked in the lake, but couldn't see anything. Except, as she stared, she thought maybe she saw an outline. As though, behind the water, or existing at the same time as it, there was a valley leading down. To what? The water was too dark. Suddenly, she felt so thirsty. Mrs. Priest's class was the first one to reach the water. The students at the vanguard entered without a splash or a ripple. When she felt the water at her feet, Mrs. Priest began to thrash wildly, trying to make her students lose their grip. Some did, but other grasping hands were there to hold her. The children walked into the water as though it wasn't there. It didn't slow them down. Their normal school clothes didn't float around them. Mrs. Priest was different, though. The water was just normal water for her. As they walked deeper in, Mrs. Butler watched the students' heads in the front duck below the water's edge and disappear. But at the same time, she could almost see them still, walking happily on the lake's bottom as though out for a summer stroll. The stragglers behind them holding Mrs. Priest also went below the water's edge. Her thrashing, floating body pulled them up off their feet at times, but there were too many of them holding her down for her to break free. When her head ducked below the water's surface, it boiled up in a disturbing way. Cheryl, the student teacher, was holding hands and chatting happily with the girl next to her as her head went under the water. Her head was turned towards the girl to speak to her, and Mrs. Butler saw her go beneath mid-sentence. The water was both there and not there around Mrs. Butler's legs. She pulled on the children, but not with the same wild force as Mrs. Priest or the teachers around her. Two thoughts bounced around the inside of her brain. With such force, she barely felt the children holding her. The water is going to drown you, said one thought before ricocheting into. There is no water. You're going to the city. As the students found the road into the valley, as she began to float, as her feet felt the dry asphalt, Mrs. Butler wished she had drank more water. The two thoughts continued their battle within her. Both sides held their ground until her mouth and nose filled with water, and the drowning side won. She began to thrash in earnest. The children had been lulled by her weak attempts before, and held down by the gravity of the valley they lost grip on her. She broke through the surface of the lake and sputtered loudly. All around her, the lake and school grounds were completely placid. She swam to the shore and coughed, vomiting up water. 
No one else was there on the shore. The tape holding one end of black and orange streamers had come free and they danced in the wind. The only unusual thing she could see on the lake was her black witch's hat floating a few yards out. The lake was a lake. It was water. There was no valley. There was no city. A cloud passed in front of the sun. It was Halloween. She struggled to her feet and walked feebly to her car, every muscle sore from her ordeal in the lake. Mrs. Butler drove home and sat at the kitchen table. When Mr. Butler got home from work and asked her how her day was, she said it was fine between long sips of water from the large glass she kept refilling at the kitchen sink. What a strange letter. Who was writing it? God? I'm only joking, of course. There's no God here. Besides, the letter was signed, The All-Seeing Eye of Worms by Gore. So no mystery there. I wondered why there were no trick-or-treaters this Halloween. So thanks for that, All-Seeing Eye. Friends and neighbors, I would love to gossip with you all day and some of the night about who is planting murderous lovers in whose backyards and who is finding strange portals to other planes, but there is a piper demanding payment. I take you now to a word from our sponsor.
finally, friends, one last letter pressed upon me by the city council itself. Written by city comptroller Craig Cummings. We started the night with a confession, and it's only right to end it with one. I hope we can all find it in our hearts to excuse the actions of our council-appointed government officials. I did it, okay? I did it. I guess I hope it will make this all easier for everybody if I just admit that right at the start. Obviously, there are very good reasons for it, but yeah, when you get down to the facts of the matter, I was the one to switch this over to Lake Mellon, Cholera Water. Here's the thing though, being the accountant for a small town is basically impossible. Especially with the city council we've got, long may they reign. And listen, I'm not trying to talk shit about the council. Obviously they're all benevolent dictators that execute us for our own good at any perceived infraction. I'm just saying when you ask them how high of a priority any given project is, and they say 10 every time, that isn't helpful. Like sure, we all want the sidewalk devils dealt with, and police tailing us two cars back every morning when we go to work, but do we really need a webcam going 24 hours a day, 500 feet under the lake, with multiple ankles and backup generators in case of power outages? If the city council is listening, yes, of course we need that. Your wisdom knows no bounds. Needless to say, I'm always looking for ways to stretch the budget. Bringing in new revenue is great. The axe tax was a huge success. Although investigation is still ongoing on why the people in this town buy so many axes. So far all the signs seem to be pointing to, stop asking questions if you don't want an axe in your gut. But I'm getting off topic. Yeah, additional revenues are always the best. But people don't like to hear they've got to pay a little extra on their tax bill today so they can have devil-free sidewalks next month, you know? It's like human nature or something. So sometimes, cuts just have to be made. I looked at our expenditures and we were spending a ton of money to have water piped in from somewhere else. From where? Nobody knows. I'd put a check in an envelope, paint the back of it with black tar, and burn the thing in the city hall basement, chanting and breathing in the smoke. You know, normal mail stuff. Then a day or two later the check would be cashed by... Weird static. I only knew it was even related to the water because my predecessor told me before I replaced him, and he mysteriously vanished. So my first idea was, why not keep the money and see what happens? That was the month we had the martyrs parade, and nobody was whining about bad water then, let me tell you. When you tell the people we have some extra cash for a nice festival, suddenly everyone is your best friend, inviting you to join their martyr hunting party. So for a month I believed we were going to be fine. Anything outside of Lake Melancholera has always just been a rumor anyway. But then I started to get mail of my own. A dead bird on my front porch with a little note tied to its foot that said, Water Bill. Pay for water etched into the hood of my car. What sounded like children running on the roof of my house in the middle of the night, and algae and seaweed dripping from the rain gutters in the morning. But at the same time, Julie Chen was calling me up and asking me what the plans were for next month. Would there be another town party? Was I planning on taking anybody? What can I say? I'm a lonely man. It's hard to date in a town where you've known everybody since before you were born. So I turned to the only thing I could think of. The Lake Melancholera Water Treatment Facility. We've all seen the water plant out there by Lake Melancholera. 
It's been boarded up for ages, and every few years somebody will, will get the idea to renovate it into a microbrewery, or second Brooks Grocery, or a combination Wendy's slash Lone's Cones. But those plans never go anywhere. I think it's because of all the decapitations that have happened there over the years. Like sure, dozens of people that we know of have been found without their heads outside of the water treatment facility over the last few centuries. Yeah, 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 there's no record of it ever having been built, and it has been there since before running water was a thing. Big whoop. Let's not get all superstitious over spooky ghost stories. So what if the gurgling wails of headless necks can be heard on moonless nights across the lake? When I woke up for the sixth night in a row from a dream of drowning in rushing pipes, with the whooshing of water whispering, Pay us! Pay us! I knew something had to be done. I called up Randy, the lowest guy on the Lake Melancholera Public Works totem pole, and told him I needed some help out of the treatment plant. At first he didn't want to go, but I told him it was city council orders and he grudgingly agreed. Okay, that was a little bit of a white lie, but if I had gone down to city hall and prayed to them about it, I'm sure I would have gotten the go-ahead. I drove down to the lake and sat in my car outside the plant, waiting for Randy to show up. Well, first I parked my car got out, and walked a few feet towards the building before getting spooked and waiting in the car. I thought I'd sit on the steps and wait for him, but the willows around the lake hid the doorway there in shadows, so maybe I'm a little superstitious too. It's spooky all over this damn town. Randy finally showed up in a rusty blue town pickup and got out right away, lugging that dented red toolbox he takes everywhere. I nodded a hello at him, and we approached the plant. The place was dead silent. I tried to fill the silence, telling Randy we needed to go in and take a look around, see how the plant had been holding up since it was last used. It hadn't been used at all so far as I knew, and Randy told me that's what he thought too. What windows we could see were caked with that dusty dirt old windows get when nobody looks through them for years. The ones on the first story were boarded over with planks as though they had been covered before plywood had been invented. I don't know if you've ever been out by the treatment facility, but if not, the strangest thing about the place isn't that it seems ancient, because it doesn't. This place predates history, and yet it looks like any underused factory you might see in a photograph coming in from out of town. If you believe there is an out of town, which I don't, you'd expect a place like this to be all pine shingles and stone slabs, but it's not. It's 30 years out of date at most. We approached the front door with its chains and old wood planks holding it shut. Randy asked me if I was sure this was what the council wanted, and I told him it was. He pulled a crowbar out of his toolbox and pulled the boards off the door. They came easily, but the nails were thick and irregular, and squealed loudly as he pulled them out. I had gotten the key to the plant from a forgotten corner of City Hall, where a line of keys dangled from hooks labeled with terrible places no one would want to go. A surprising number of the hooks were empty. I could name the places if you'd come over and let me write them down. I'm afraid to say the list out loud. I unlocked the padlock on the door. The key was one of those long-toothed ones you see on TV, but never in real life. The lock was incredibly heavy, but would be a piece of cake to pick if anyone ever decided they wanted to. No one ever had. The chain was thick and irregular like the nails, obviously handmade by some blacksmith in the mists of history. The links closest to the door were worn on the side facing them, 
as though they had been eroded over time by someone trying to open them again and again. The doors themselves had no wear on them, however. I tugged down the door, expecting another loud screech and a lot of resistance, and hit myself in the forehead with it. It opened easily, as though it had been oiled recently. I gestured at Randy to go inside. He raised his eyebrows at me and entered. I followed. The inside was murky because of the light filtered through the cracks and windows, but otherwise quite tidy. No debris or dust littered the floor. It looked as though it had been shut down yesterday instead of having never been used as I had expected. Randy put his crowbar back in the toolbox and pulled out a large, heavy flashlight. As he turned it on, I instinctively turned on the light switch by the door. You could barely see the light of his flashlight as the lobby area and hallway we could see behind a large front desk was flooded in bright white fluorescent light. From deep within the facility, we heard machinery of some kind coming to life. From vents in the ceiling, cool air began to blow. Rather than creepy or eerie, the place seemed about as welcoming as a corporate structure can, which is to say, I was scared out of my mind. I went behind the desk. There was a phone with a row of lights and buttons on it. When I picked it up and held it to my ear, I heard a dial tone. Underneath the dial tone, I thought I heard the sound of rushing water, reminding me of my nightmares. I slammed it on the cradle and looked at the papers that had been piled in a very normal-looking plastic outbox, as though whoever had once worked here had left one weekend evening, fully expecting to come back Monday morning. I picked up a paper out of curiosity. Having worked so long in city management, it was obviously an invoice, with a blocks of text as a letterhead and a column for adding up numbers owed or received. The text was nothing I have ever seen before and hoped to never see again. It made my eyes itch to look at it, as though something was trying to get into my head through them. I laid the paper back in the outbox, text side down. When I looked up, I couldn't see Randy. I heard him behind me, and turned in time to see the doors at the end of the hallway behind the desk closing shut. I called out to him and followed. I don't know how to explain the next length of time, or how long it really was. Was it minutes? Seconds? Days? Years? I'm not sure. The evidence of the day around it makes me think an hour at most, but the actual experience is harder to put into words. And how did it feel to experience it? Was I scared? Lost? Bored? Excited? I guess the best way to go is to say what I remember and leave it at that. First of all, it seemed as though Randy was always just a little bit ahead of me. I was never really trying to catch him, or even to catch up with him, but no matter how long it took me to get through any part of the plant, he was always just ahead of me. Second, I could feel something pulling me forward, or more accurately, something was pushing me further in. The memory of the pipes in my nightmares was always there, but now it didn't frighten me. I was water in a pipe with purpose, headed to help people. Every step was satisfying. Third. Although something in the plant obviously wanted me there, somewhere further on in the endless hallways, the trip was still interminable. Hundreds of nearly identical hallways, filled with posters that were unfaded but also not brand new. Public works works, Tex said, over a mustached man holding a wrench. Water can be a product, a service, and a right. Our water tastes great too, a sweaty glass of ice water proclaimed. 
In the corners, potted plants thrived about as well as they do in any office you've ever visited. Some floors were carpeted with that hard gray industrial carpet that comes in tiles and feels about as cushiony as a stone slab. Some floors were the light green tile you remember from school, and some were just poured concrete, but all were in good repair. The walls were all white, and the light was uniform. Doorways led off to either side of each hallway. Some had windows, and through them I could see large factory floors full of pipes and solid metal machinery. Sometimes the door at the end of a hall would lead to a factory floor, and I would know I had to take a turn then. The rush of the pipeway I was slotted in told me which door to take. Some of the doors led to offices or break rooms. Sometimes there was a room the size of a factory floor, but filled with bunks, as though the workers in this plant never left. Some of the rooms were stranger. I saw a library full of technical manuals. I saw a room with black walls and ceiling, with red light coming from the fluorescent light fixture. I saw a room that was a daycare center, where green cartoon pipes were painted on the walls and all the toys had a water theme. I saw a room with an old projector and movie screen and rows of metal chairs. I saw so many rooms, but never any people. I saw so many doors without windows, and these were the bad ones. I crossed to the other side of the hallway and tried to walk past as silently as possible. It felt as though I walked through those hallways endlessly. Sometimes I get the feeling that I'm still walking through those hallways even now. Finally, I came to the last hallway. I knew it was. Every one of the hallways I had walked through before it was a little unnerving like any sanitary corporate place you don't know the rules of and don't really belong in. But although they all had a normal amount of wear and tear, they had all been relatively modern and sterile. This hallway was the same, but the door at the end was not. At the far end, instead of professional white plaster, there were large brown bricks. They shone in the fluorescent light like a stone from the bottom of a river. The door was short, made for people long ago. It was made of crude iron. A series of symbols I recognized from the letterhead on the paper in the lobby was painted on it in a brown paint. I looked everywhere but at them. I was rooted in place, for the first time not wanting to go forward any farther. Behind me, I could feel the force piling up, pushing me towards the door. I resisted for a few more moments, but I knew I couldn't fight it for long, so I gave in and went to the door. I don't think any other experience will ever feel as good as walking those last ten feet. I ducked down and entered the last room. It was made entirely of the shiny brown bricks. They were cold and damp to the touch. In the center of the room, Randy sat on the floor with his legs splayed in front of him. His flashlight was the only light in the room. His face was blank. He stared at what the flashlight was illuminating. At the far side of the room was a large pipe coming out of the floor. It stood about three feet above the brick floor and led to a junction with two other pipes. One came down from the brick ceiling and one came in horizontally from the wall. The pipe from the floor and through the wall was of a part with the rest of the plant, if not new, then at least not ancient. The pipe from the ceiling though was crude and old, of an age that matched the brick and iron of the room. At the junction was a lever of the same metal as the pipe from the ceiling. It was pointed towards the old, crude pipe. That's it, Randy told me. That's what we came to see. I thought about the plant we had come through. Everything was in top repair and ready to go. 
My next step should be go back to the city council and hire some people to get this plant up and running. It would be a large expenditure at the outset, but we'd be saving money before the year was through. I opened my mouth to tell Randy we would leave, but the rushing pipe that had led me here snapped my mouth shut. The rushing water whispered to me, You're already here, the water said. Have him turn the lever. Did you have to hire men to keep all those factory floors repaired? To sweep the hallways? To remove the heads in the black room? The water was speaking sense. Sure, I didn't want to be superstitious about the spookiness of the place, but it obviously did hold a kind of power, didn't it? If I was here to save money, getting the water for nothing surely was even better than hiring some civil servants to come babysit machines that didn't seem to need watching. I opened my mouth again, and this time I was able to tell Randy to turn the lever. Are you sure, boss? The city council said so? He asked me, pointing the flashlight in my eyes. I nodded. I snuck out of the room as he turned the lever. Behind me, the loud, slurping sound of the water passing through the old pipes became a gentle rush as the system switched over. Hey, wait up, Randy shouted as the door shut behind me. It was my turn to be just ahead. This time, the pipes were done with me. I felt a final push in that hall leading to a windowless door to the left. I opened it and found myself back in the lobby. We had gone on an endless spiral to find our way there. For the next few weeks, I would drive past the Lake Melancholera water treatment plant every night after work, until I finally found what I was looking for. On the front steps, a headless body, dressed in blue coveralls with Randy stitched over the pocket. I bent down and pulled the corpse over my shoulders in a fireman's carry, lugged it down to the water, and slipped it into the lake without a splash. I thought it would be hard, but that pushing through the pipes behind me helped. I've heard there have been some issues with the lake water. If anyone would like to see a tax hike, feel free to bring it up at the next town meeting. Me, I've got other things to think about. Julie and I are set to go to the Night of Ice convocation at the winter solstice, and I'd like to drop a couple pounds beforehand to fit into my old robes. See you folks around town. And now, friends and neighbors, I must make my goodbyes. Goodbye to you, and you, and you, and you. Thank you for joining me on this conversation on the harrowing days of Halloween. The day is done, and the night is long. We must all make our way to the warm embrace of our beds. Curfew is in effect for everyone within the sound of this broadcast as of... Now. Violators will be executed. The city council requests everyone to keep a tall glass of water by your bedside and demands that you drink a few before going to work tomorrow. But for now, sleep. The preceding homage or gentle parody of a mashup between A Prairie Home Companion and Welcome to Night Vale was written and performed by Greggy Hoxteller. Accompanying music in this episode was written and performed by Andrew Clotworthy. Everybody Wants to Live on the Moon was also written and performed by Andrew Clotworthy. You can find Andrew on Twitter at Clotwo, C-L-O-T-W-O, or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Clotworthy. 
The song of the werewolf House of Wolves was written and performed by Andy Nice. You can find Andy on Twitter at at Nisage, K-N-E-I-S-A-G-E, or SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Nisage. Artwork for this episode was made by my best friend, Dixon. Goodbye.